from Revelation chapter 5. I want to read this to you. Maybe you can feel what John felt as he was standing in the heavens, seeing all of this before him. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. So picture this, the the I am sitting on the throne holding a scroll, and an angel comes and he proclaims to all of heaven, looks out and proclaims with a mighty voice. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The revelation of God, here it is, the angel says, who can open the scroll and give us what God has said? And no one can answer that call. And John says, I'm moved to weeping. But then it goes on, it says, one of the elders in heaven says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped fathers we get ready to go into 
the last part of chapter 15 of Second, or 1 Corinthians. And we're looking at the resurrection. This is, this is what was played out in the throne room of heaven before John. And Paul is going to teach us that that all that we do is not in vain, that we press on, we press in. The resurrection has such power because there is a lamb, though he had seen to have been slain, is standing and worthy to open the scrolls. He is the Lion of Judah. Jesus, you have redeemed a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. We are those people here in Somerset this morning. We are worshiping in our heavenly sanctuary and bringing our incense of praise to be offered into that bowl that the elders hold in the heavenly sanctuary. Father, you are worthy of all that was spoken in Revelation. And you are worthy of our worship. May we understand the depth and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we understand what that means for us. May we be encouraged this morning. May we press on in the midst of whatever is happening because we have walked closely with you this morning and heard your spirit say, this is the lamb who was slain. Though he is dead, yet he lives. We walk with him. So teach us as we go through this passage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish chapter 15 uh, this morning of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, uh, chapter 15, we'll be starting in verse 29. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and we're going to do some quick work to get through the end, but uh, I, I think you're going to be really blessed and encouraged as to how Paul wraps this up. But we start here in verse 29. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Keep going. (laughs) I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Go ahead. What with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. 
There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is, writ- so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have become the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord for us. It's not uncommon to go through hard seasons in our faith, and at times we can get tired, very tired. We get exhausted or emotionally we get hurt or we become disillusioned with how things seem to be going. And then the thoughts of defeat start to creep in. We ask questions like, why do I even keep doing this? Why do we keep going to church? What's the point? In fact, this has happened to such a great number of Christians that they have been given a label They're called the de-churched. Paul, in this part of Corinthians, gives one encouragement to keep laboring for the Lord, and it is found in the resurrection, specifically our resurrection. So verse 29, he says this, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? People 
were in Paul's day doing this because they believed that they could make those who had died right before God by doing a religious ceremony on their behalf. Does that sound familiar? There's people who believe that, like, I want my loved ones who have gone on before me to be right with God, so I will do something on their behalf. Paul's not endorsing baptism for the dead. He's saying people do this. Why do they do this? Because they believe in the resurrection. It's, it's, it has a foundation. He's saying this religious ceremony that we're seeing in our culture is because these people believe in a resurrection to come. And so they're trying to do something religious for those who have gone on, trying to get good merit before for God for them. He's not endorsing this. He's already talked, and we've talked about this in sermons past, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Like it, That time is done for them. But he's pointing to this activity that is being done. He says, people are doing this religious ceremony on others' behalf. So he's not affirming this as a Christian practice, but he's showing that this misunderstanding is based on the truth of the resurrection. He says, without the resurrection, why would they act this way? In short, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it if they didn't believe in a resurrection. So verse 30 and 32, he says, why are we in danger every hour? He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, so he continues to point out that their actions are also based on belief. Why would he put himself in peril if it wasn't true? Why would the apostles be in danger every time they go against the culture if it was a lie? He said, we wouldn't do that. We do this because it's true. One of the great apologetics for how do we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true is we look at the early apostles. Everyone gave their life for the truth. They didn't recant. They didn't move away from it. It's a great testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel. Now, people will not die for a lie. And you may say that there have been many who have done so in history, that they have died for lies. But those who died for those lies, they believe those lies to be true. That's the point. Paul in the early church saw Jesus physically resurrected. They beheld him. They walked with him. They saw him. They believe the gospel. They won't recant, and they will go to horrific deaths. They die for the truth, and they live and act as they do because of the truth of God. So Paul says, I'm in danger every day for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this isn't true, then what am I doing? Let's just have a party. Let's do something else. So Paul is pointing out to the church that they should be living a life that shows how precious Christ is to us. It's that transformed life that shows the world that there is more than just living for the fleeting entertainment of the now. Galatians 2.20 Paul writes this to the church in Galatia. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's, he says, I live for Jesus. This truth should be true for all of us. We should all be living for this, for who he is. He has ransomed us. He has made us new. Paul points out that sometimes the affections we have are too distracted or too small. Verses 33 and 34, he says, Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Because of the life they are living, and many other worldly Christians live, people in their circles who are dear to them, who have not heard the gospel, have not seen the gospel in action through their lives, have no knowledge of the impending judgment that is to come. They have no knowledge of a Savior who can rescue them. Paul would challenge us not to follow the example of, the, of this Corinthian church, of these Christians. He's saying they've been so caught up in the worldly things that the people don't even realize they're in peril. Those who are in darkness don't even realize that they need a Savior, that there is one who has come to save them. Because they look at the church and it looks like everyone else. If we truly want to hear the Master say, well done, good and faithful servant, we need to live for Christ and love people well. And that means, in part, living in such a way that highlights the work of God in our transformed lives and talk to people about it. Like, we need to talk about what God's doing in our life, how he's changing us and transforming us. Are we perfect? No. But are we being changed from glory to glory? Yes, absolutely. And we should be highlighting that. We should be talking about that. Look what Jesus has done in me this week, this month, this year. Look at the grace he's given to me. Look at how good he is. It should make your conversations be peppered with thanksgiving and praise. Listen, if Jesus doesn't appear important to you, you who claim to be Christian, then why would he ever seem important to those in the world? Paul speaks to the vital need described in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, by keeping evil company as he lays out in these verses here in in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church and the Corinthian Christians were being conformed to the world. And they needed to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Christians must let the word of God shape their thinking, not the evil company of the world. But let me make a note about evil company. It's strong language, isn't it? Evil company are those acquaintances who are trapped in lives that live against God and in their deception promote others to live against the ways of God. 
However, Paul says that it's not the people, but the spiritual reasoning of the world we strive against. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6, he says, For our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And again, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what this means is that we are conforming our lives and our thoughts in such a way that we see people as God sees them. Fallen, in need of rescue, trapped in sin and held in philosophical chains that are built on lies and not truth. All people need to be saved and indeed can be saved through Christ. So we do not link arms and walk with them in the ways of the world, but we come alongside people and and we wake them from their worldly slumber. We speak truth to them. We serve them. We, We love them, but we do not condone. We do not capitulate. This is what it means to love the sinner but hate the sin. We should want all to come to repentance, just as the Father does. That means we should live and labor in such a way that this quote by Charles Spurgeon should describe us. Listen to this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Does that describe us? Does that describe the church? It should. And Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, this doesn't describe you. He says, it's to your shame how you're living. People are not being warned. They don't see. You're you're in lockstep with the world. You should be warning them. You should be loving them. You should be serving them, calling them to the Savior, pointing to the resurrection to come. A couple questions for us to to contemplate from, from this verse here is, who is shaping you? Who are you with? Who's shaping you? And who are you following? It's it's one thing to be around those who need Christ. It's quite another to be led by those who don't know Christ. There's a distinction. It's it's okay to have friends and and acquaintances and people who need Jesus because we need to be sharing with them. You need to be around people who need Jesus. It's one thing to be an acquaintance with them, but it's another thing to be led by them. Meaning, I don't want to offend. I want to come alongside. I do what they do. I just want to be there so I can have opportunities. But what you're doing is you're giving 
the devil what he wants. They're, they're having a good time going to hell, and you're right there next to them making them feel okay about it. No, we need to, we need to be loving the world in such a way that they know that there's a great Savior and that they're in great peril. Verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So Paul isn't done with speaking about the spiritual reality that comes with the resurrection. There was this question, if people are raised, then what will they look like? It's a, it's a snarky question, actually. It's a kind of a, I'm trying to get you. I'm going to give you a gotcha question. Well, if people are raised from the dead, what does it look like? What are they going to be like? It's that kind of thing. So listen to Paul's response because his response is really harsh. He says, you foolish person, verses 36 and 41, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So Paul may seem to be very harsh here. He's calling them foolish. But remember, there are people teaching in the Corinthian church in in this setting, in this time, and even yet today, it hasn't changed, but there's people who are teaching that there's no resurrection. And so the question doesn't come across as being inquisitive. It comes across as being snarky. So he lets them have it. But listen, God does welcome genuine, heartfelt questions. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to ask genuine questions. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus, while he's teaching the people about the nature and care of the Father, says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So Jesus wants us to come in humility seeking. However, those who are haughty in spirit or proud in the spirit, the Lord will bring judgment on the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, it says this, The haughty, or the proud, looks of man shall be brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. And against all the oaks of Bashan. Against all the lofty mountains. And against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower. Against every fortified wall against all the ships of Tarshish and against the beautiful craft and the 
haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idol shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Christ, one day soon, will stand from his seat at the right hand of the Father and he'll come down. And he'll bring terror to the earth. And he will humble all things that have set themselves up against the truth of God. It's, it's kind of like this. I don't know if your dad had a lazy boy. Any of your dads have a lazy boy? And get, he'd get home and he crank that thing, the feet are up, and kids are downstairs, and you start going at it, and you hear, hey, settle down, lie down, stop that. You just keep going on, keep going, keep going, and then all of a sudden you hear, crank, 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 click, terror fills the house. Why? Dad is about to stand up from his chair. You've made him get up. One day Christ will stand from his seat and he will return. And all those things that have lifted themselves up against the truth of God, he will bring them low. He will make all things right. Christ welcomes our sincere questions, but God will not abide those who speak falsely against the truth, leading others into destruction. Paul speaks about the resurrection body using this same illustration here as Jesus that our bodies are like seed planted and will die. But if it goes down into the ground and dies, then it will come back with a harvest. In this case, a harvest of righteousness that reflects in many ways the glorified physical body of Christ. Verses 42 through 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. How's that sound, Tim? Pretty awesome, yeah? Maybe you've suffered in the flesh. This week I've watched my wife suffer through kidney stones and muscle spasms and having different procedures done and then getting a kidney infection and just all kinds of stuff. COVID, we had COVID on top of it. And I read this and I think, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I want that body. <laughs> Paul's saying, this is what God has planned. A glorified state for his people that will look 
like the man of heaven that will reflect Christ, the glorified, risen Christ. We have all borne the image of the first Adam, and those who put their trust in the last Adam will bear his resurrection image. From the first Adam, we are all made of dust, but from the last Adam, we can be made heavenly. So for believers, the promise is sure. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Philippians 3, 21, Paul repeats this theme. Who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the work by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So since we bear the image of the heavenly man, the best example we have of what that resurrection body will be like is to see what Jesus' resurrection body was like. The resurrection body of Jesus was material and could eat. Luke 24, verses 39 to 43, we read this. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat, here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. So we see that this resurrection body is material, but yet, I don't know. In some ways, maybe our glorified body will mirror his and will not be bound by the laws of nature. Luke 24, verses 31 and 36 and 37, it says this, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought he was a spirit. Imagine what that glorified body will do. I, I don't know. I don't know what God has fully planned, but he has one for each of his people, a glorified body. Jesus' (laughs) material shows up, walks through walls, appears, disappears. I mean, I don't know if we will have those same attributes, but we will mirror the heavenly Son of God in a glorified state. Verses 50 through 57, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection body is a necessary part. It's a necessary part of our inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul is not saying material things cannot inherit the kingdom of God because Jesus' resurrection body was a material body. He says flesh and blood in this context means our present body. Jesus' resurrection body was, was not a pure spirit body, but a material body described as flesh and bone. 
Luke 24, 39. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It's an interesting little turn of phrase. I don't even know if it really means a whole lot, but it seems significant. Instead of flesh and blood, this may seem small, but it says flesh and bone. There's a distinction. Jesus is making a a small distinction here. And, And maybe it's insignificant. Maybe I'm making more out of it than it is. The transformation is a part of the victory. That's the point. The transformation is part of the victory we have in Christ over death and over all those things that come against our physical bodies in this fallen world. All of those things that come against this body will no longer be of any consequence. They will not prevail over a glorified body. Our praying for healing as a church, our asking God to make people whole who are suffering in the flesh are all good And it's all proper because those acts of power point to the final and secured victory we have in the resurrection. So when we pray for healing, what we're doing is we're pointing to what God will ultimately do. When we pray for wholeness, we're saying, this is what Jesus will ultimately do. This body, he may heal it. I may say, pray for me, I'm sick and I have this ailment and you pray for me and God heals me. It's just reminding me that one day there's a glorified body to come that you will not need to pray for. It shows the beauty of what God has done, the resurrection power. Those miracles point to the one who will make all things new. Those glimpses of restoration show that Christ has power over all things, and he has wonderful things in store for his people. So then we, in a small way, experience and taste of what is to come, and in a small way, see the kingdom of God that is and is yet to come. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, your labor, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So as the great theologian General Maximus Decimus Meridius said in Gladiator, <laughs> remember, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Paul says, keep pressing on for the Lord. The work he has for you is of great worth and is of eternal value. It's kingdom work. It's God's work. The blessing to come is worth it. The blessing in store is worth it. So we do not work and labor at times and suffer in vain. He says, none of this is in vain. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16-18, Paul will remind them again. He'll remind the same church again. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We all need the reminder. But we also need the inspiration of the hope of glory that is to come. 
It's good to be reminded, but man, we need that inspiration. We need to have that hope. This is the part of the fuel that drives us. It's part of the reason we continue to get up and and press on every day and not lose hope. This should work to make us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We don't need to waver. We don't need to change direction. We don't need to fall. We don't need to quit. Hebrews chapter 6, Paul says this, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The Lord will show his remembrance of our work and labor of love at the resurrection. He's, he's seeing all of it. He's counting all of it. He says, I have reward for you. And the glorified body is part of that. So the next time, the next time you feel like you should, you, you feel like, why should I care anymore? I'm just so done. I'm so tired. Or someone says to you, what's the point of all of it anyway? I pray that this chapter comes to your mind. I pray that this this articulation of the resurrection and the glorified body comes to your mind. And that it will give you that encouragement and it will give you just part of a beautiful answer that rekindles hope in you and in others. We pray with me? Father, I, th- I thank you for this promise And in Christ, it is amen and yes. It is guaranteed. We don't have to hope in the sense of, oh, I I hope one day you'll give it to us. We know, we hope in something that we know will be given. And we see glimpses of it so we don't lose heart. We press on, we press in. So God, I just pray that as we are encouraged by this, and we, we think about just the work and the labor that you have for us, that it's not in vain, that you would also encourage us to examine our lives, that we would surrender completely to you, Lord Jesus, that we would live in such a way that sinners would see that there is a great Savior who gives great promises of new life and the promise of a resurrection body, who overcomes all of this fallen world who will set all things right, make all things new. So help us to be steadfast, determined to set our feet on the, on the rock of Christ, firmly planted, that we would not compromise or capitulate, that we would walk in love with those around us, that they would know. Father, may we take the truth of the resurrection with us. May we be encouraged encouraged on the journey that is still ahead until you call us home or until you return. This is the fuel that drives us, the hope of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. So we give thanks. In Jesus' name we pray.